You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to a Life in Ruins podcast, episode eight. Today, we are excited to introduce our new series, Our Ruined Lives, which will air on the fourth Monday of every month, which means we are now dropping two a Life in Ruins episodes every month. The Our Ruined Lives episodes are a little different from our regular content. These aren't interviews, but dynamic conversation among colleagues about current topics in the field of anthropology. So without further ado, here is our friend and colleague, Damian Kirkwood, here to be our first guest on our first Our Ruined Live episode. So how are you doing, Damian? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. Dude, absolutely, of course. We're very excited to release this new uh, episode series with you. So just for our listeners, could you uh, tell us who you are, how you met us, and your educational background? I'll try to hit all those points. Well, I'm currently a field supervisor with LTA, and that is a private CRM firm in Laramie, Wyoming. I mean, we typically work with evaluating features and hazards on the landscape that are rela- related to historic hard rock mining and coal mining. And I know uh, David and Connor from grad school here at the University of Wyoming, where um, I did my thesis, and that was focused in zooarchaeology. I'm a faunal analyst and a cut mark analyst. And my thesis research kind of helped develop methods for observing spatial patterning of faunal remains at mass kill sites using a statistical approach. The goal was to kind of look for assembly line butchering and how people organize themselves and their waste when they're butchering a large number of animals at one time. And also to test whether that's actually observable in the archaeological record. So real quick before we continue, could you briefly explain to our listeners what zooarchaeology is and like some of the methods you use to look at uh, cut marks and faunal analysis? So zooarchaeology is an offshoot or a branch of archaeology that focuses on examining faunal remains or animal remains that are recovered from um, an archaeological context. And as far as the methods that I employ, it's usually uh, macro and microscopic analyses. Um, As far as cut marks go, my expertise are kind of using cut marks as a alternative dating method to identify proto-historic or contact era sites. And that would just mean looking at trying to identify stone cut marks versus metal cut marks, because oftentimes metal implements and the tools aren't left because they're valuable. They're not always recoverable at the excavations. And so they're often taken with them away from the site by the people using them, or they also disintegrate uh, very easily. And so one way to look and try to date these type of proto-historic sites is to kind of use uh, microscopic analyses to identify metal specifically and uh stone and you have a you have an article about that in uh in planes in, yeah out right now yeah, in planes about how you know, your blind test a blind study of those two where you were able to identify different cut marks um based on their kind of their form and how they're yeah how they're so cut, there's I guess. Um, diagnostic yeah. um attributes that we use to differentiate between metal and stone and 
what we did is we took uh, kind of like an experimental approach to develop the methods. So we got some cow bones that were donated to us from a local butcher shop. And uh, we had someone mark them up with uh, metal and uh, stone, uh, like a biface and then like a, a metal knife. And then they would have the nice. key, you know, and they would test us on our accuracy uh, based on what we use to classify um, a metal versus a stone implement. And actually, we spent over 300 hours doing these kind of blind tests, plus applying it to an actual funnel assemblage, which I think is the most time that uh, someone spent looking at cut marks. And it kind of proved to be an actual uh, reliable source for dating the the proto-historic era. Uh, we had over 90% accuracy, which is quite high. That's awesome, man. So yeah. I have a real quick question. Are you going to Plains next week? I'm not. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> Why is that? So, yeah, for our, for our, for our listeners, uh, the Plains Anthropological mm-hmm. Society Conference, which is my big subfield conference, is next week in Bloomington. And apparently, dude, there's hardly anyone coming. Like, it's usually fully booked for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and they're only having one session Saturday morning because there's such a low turnout this year to go to Bloomington. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, where's it at again? Uh, Bloomington, Indiana. It's being hosted by University of Indiana, Bloomington. So uh, Dr. Scheiber, I believe, is the uh, this year's host. But uh, it'd been cool if you were going. I'm going. I'm looking forward to it. I'm about to win all the. I'm going to win all of the uh, student competitions. Calling it right now. <laughs> There's more vests worn at that conference than there are at Sturgis, and it's really funny to me. I'm pretty sure uh, Dr. Marcel Kornfeld from University of Wyoming still wears the same. V- leather vest that he wore yeah. to his first planes back in the 70s oh yeah I didn't but know no it was patches that old, right <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 that old according to us uh, some sources who have known him that entire time that it's the same one still going strong after all these years <laughs> yeah he made it with stone tools i heard <laughs> killed Just himself and everything yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. killed the animal with an atlatl is probably one of the goats he had uh the students kill at field school and just mm-hmm. uh, you know made it himself and then just able to keep keep on going but uh <laughs> dude that's i mean that's awesome i think you're pretty i'm pretty sure you're the first zooarchaeologist that we've had on the show correct me if i'm wrong anybody yeah i, we've think, had I think so yeah yeah well, um, you know, technically, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a fringe scientist. <laughs> what the fuck does that <laughs> That's mean? For sure, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I I regret saying that out loud on on the air. Um, so this is a science <laughs> only podcast. Don't you come in here with that pseudoscience bullshit and besmirch the good A Life in Ruins podcast name. We're too late in the game, David. <laughs> you guys, I just do. I don't even know what I want to say there. David, what's the difference between zooarchaeology <laughs> and archaeozoology? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, just the terminology, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know? Okay. I mean, it was going to be a joke, and I was going to be like, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. But, yeah. It's, oh, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's called archaeozoology overseas, and, like, you'll see a lot of journals say – I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to, like, the audience in general. Like, Caleb Welch, if he's listening. Uh, well, like, <laughs> um, like archaeozoology is how it's called there. And then we just aren't normal. I see. Zooarchaeology. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and like most of my stuff, you know, I, I am a zooarchaeologist, but 
I do focus a lot on taphonomy, you know, or you like what, you know, like what happens to an artifact or a bone after it's been deposited is more of my focus than anything. A bone is a bone, you know, so there's only, it eliminates all the more subjectivity, I suppose, in my opinion, uh, versus having like um, the cultural material where we have a lot of subjective and disagreement <laughs> about a lot of things. Yeah. Tread lightly. Um, <laughs> and uh, taphonomy, that is uh, ephemerov, right? Is that the, the scientist yes. came up with that? And it's the transition of organic materials from the biosphere to the lithosphere. If yeah. I remember that right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, did, you, did you remember that or did you look it up? Oh, I remember <laughs> that. Uh, the one thing I remember from graduate school. <laughs> I mean, uh, I remember uh, a what, lot. On, on a, on a yeah. side note, what's the study of like Bigfoot called? Isn't there like a scientific that, or pseudoscientific mm. name for that? Uh, cryptozoology. Yeah, cryptozoology. Uh, cryptozoology. That's cryptozoology. what it was. I thought, you were, I thought that's what David was referencing. I was like, what? Dude. Or squatching to the layman's. <laughs> squatching. <laughs> yeah. The Sam Squamps. Mm hmm. Yeah, um, which is always really funny. Hold on, like if, if I, I've always wanted to talk about Bigfoot. Oh, I like, have a lot to say about Bigfoot. Now is my chance to talk about the Sasquatch. <laughs> if, if we're all comfortable with talking about Sasquatch in the context of the archaeological record, yeah, I, I'm down. Sure, Damien, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go. Yeah, do, do you mind if I yeah, state yeah. my opening statement? <laughs> state your opening statement. <laughs> Okay, so I'm a huge fan of primatology. Humans are primates. We are mammals that are primates. So take that with, a, you know, what it is. Primates are extremely social creatures. We all live in social groups. Even if there's like loners, like orangutan males who go off and do their thing, they eventually come back to a large like forest full of female orangutans where they're hanging out. So why is there one primate animal that just wanders around by itself for no reason? And everyone's like, oh, they don't want you to know they exist. No, if it was a primate and it exists, it would hang out with a bunch of other primates wide in the open, loud as fuck, throwing shit everywhere. And it would he's, be right in front of us. I think he's asexual, actually. He's self-reproducing. He? Yep, self-reproducing. Oh, that throws a wrench yeah. in my entire mm -hmm. theory then. Yeah, I don't know. But um, The reason why we don't have Bigfoot in the archaeological record is simple. Is that they didn't exist until the 1960s when L. Oh Ron Hubbard, as God. part of the Black Lodge... <laughs> summoned him and the other cryptids in a ruined summoning ceremony that brought all these creatures from another dimension, which is why we can't find them in the archaeological record. So Bigfoot, Chupacabra, the Yeti. Is that the Bohemian Grove? They're, they're not They're not from this dimension. And that's why they were introduced <laughs> in the 60s. And that's why you, you got to be careful. It's all L. Ron Hubbard's fault. You know what else was uh, introduced to the in the 60s was uh, drugs. <laughs> Psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> that could be also an explanation. No coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But it's kind of funny though, because what I love, what I love about those stories, like when people talk about like Sasquatch, um, the Thunderbird, or all these other cryptids, mm -hmm. is when they talk about them. That is when Native American oral traditions are like validated. Like, oh, but the Indians talk about it, or it's on right, rock art. Right. But in any other context those people are completely ignored and like none of their stories about how what things happen are validated unless it's being used by largely by the cryptozoology community which i think is just a fascinating cultural phenomenon of picking and choosing 
your evidence. They get money to do this stuff. It's it's wild. That's my that's yeah. my main beef is that like they are actually I, I know a guy who is kind of associated with the University of Wyoming through a bunch of different avenues um, who is actively getting funding to do cryptozoological research. And I think it was even more than the funding that we had for being out there for doing, you know, archaeological research, which is crazy. So it's like it's just getting funneled into these like, I don't know like Discovery Channel excitement, like, we're going to find the next Squatch thing. Yeah, reality TV, and they edit the I mean, like, just for our listeners, (laughs) the United States, I'm pretty sure, has the largest population of archaeologists in any country. I think we're over, like, we're a couple thousand. And the United States is one of the most heavily archaeological investigated countries, meaning that the amount of archaeological investigation that has gone on and has not yielded any sort of evidence about sasquatch i mean that that's what it comes from you can talk about something hanging out in the woods or it doesn't see people but if they're that recent you'd find you wouldn't find fossils you'd find bones and you'd find remains and we find remains of a lot of animals in varying states of decay but the fact that we haven't found any single evidence i mean like granted like where does when when a sasquatch uses the sasquatch bathroom which I imagine uh, they used Charmin Ultra Toilet Paper, um, super soft. That was the commercial with the bear joke. But uh, I got moving you. on, Scott, yeah. um, <laughs> that's another sponsor of yours, I'm sure. Yeah, Charmin Ultra. Shout get out to Charmin, friends. trying to get that sponsorship. Just working. yeah, Charmin. Um, yeah, yeah, like they're like I mean, you're so archaeologists. Like there'd be bones, there'd be other physical remains associated with it, and we haven't found any form of evidence right. biologically speaking for bigfoot and every time they do a dna study on hair that's found it always comes out as bear mm-hmm. yeah well that's what i think a lot of people mistake because they see beer, bears probably standing on their hind legs you know and they see them from afar and so it probably looks like a bigfoot but it probably is just a bear you know and the mind playing tricks on you or whatever yeah yeah like the mind uh, the human mind is like notoriously like not good at remembering things and know conflates and Mm -hmm. and misremembers things like notoriously you know i'm gonna throw something out there that's maybe controversial but to play devil's advocate about not finding remains you know how we find a lot of well not a lot but we find mostly mammoth remains and you know we conclude that there's probably a large uh, subsistence on mammoths and in my opinion we find mammoth bone more often because it's just a bigger bone so it takes longer time for it to disintegrate and then you won't find it unlike you know small mammals and things like that those bones are going to disappear faster from the landscape than a large mammal didn't we have this talk in oh in yes we did our, and i am so goddamn excited <laughs> that damon has brought this up <laughs> oh dude it's it's like you find people think that clovis and folsom people were big game hunters because all we do is look for big game sites mm-hmm. Like, no one goes crazy over the latest rabbit kill finding. Like, we just don't find the small mammals or the small animals because they don't last in the archaeological record as well as big bones. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a bias in the paleo-Indian community looking at these people as big game hunters if they do. I agree. For that reason. It's because that's what we find. It's like two years ago when I was at University of Wyoming, they rounded everybody up 
in the middle of the winter because they found a mammoth out in the middle of Wyoming. They rounded up grad students to go and find that. Now, would they do that with any other archaeological site? Probably not. Exactly. Boom. Fucking uh, jewel draw. So another ad like sidebar or devil's advocate there, when the public is aware that there's mammoth bones or they find mammoth bones eroding out of like, you know, a cut bank, wouldn't it be pretty pertinent for archaeologists to go scientifically dig that out as quick as possible so that people don't steal that mammoth bone then? Because they're pretty dope, and I would love mammoth bone gauges. Um, yeah, but... Uh, well, they found, I know in the context of the Wyoming case that it turned out not to be anthropological, meaning that there was uh, no human activity associated with it. So the, They didn't have the uh, paleontologists with them either. So it should be a joint effort probably with archaeology and paleontology just in case... That there's no, you know, cultural association that it's, you know, a paleontological find rather than archaeological. We're talking about Rudy now. And I'll tell real quick, like I was caught up in it too. So like not to say that like I was not a fan. Like when I heard there was a mammoth, I was super excited. It wasn't actually until I talked to Alex Crabe, who I I mentioned way too frequently for someone that doesn't listen to our podcast. Yeah, we got a crush. God, he's a gorgeous, beautiful man from Northern Virginia. Um, Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one that actually calmed me down. He was the one that was like, dudes, he was like, Carlton, it's just a giant elephant. Who cares? Like, don't get worked up at it. There's other things in the archaeological record that are just as exciting. Don't conflate this. And he was right. And like, I've I've definitely reconfirmed my views. And I think my current advisor has definitely done that as well. Um, so that's just like my little beast. Like, I'm not... I don't want to be like totally on my own high horse, but I was totally caught up in it. Too. Well, I think all this, you know, proves is that uh, there's the potential that Bigfoot was around, but it just got destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of destroyed, so is this segment. So let's go to the next one. All right. Hey, Caleb. Hey, mom. If you guys are listening to this podcast and you made it to the second session, uh, we're back with Damien Kirkwood. Uh, and we're going to talk to Damien about how he got into archaeology. So, Damien, I'm going to ask you the question I just asked. How'd you get into archaeology? <laughs> well, it was actually kind of a long process. I kind of grew up in the field. My dad's a geologist. He's got his master's in geology. And so I kind of just grew up being in the field all the time. And I actually thought that's what I was going to do. Like a lot of archaeologists, you start out with an interest probably in paleontology or something like that. But I actually didn't know how to get into becoming an archaeologist. I didn't even know that was a path yet. And so when I was in community college where I started, I pretty much took every, you know, subject that you could. I changed my major so many times. It was like English, history, humanities, you know, you name it. And psychology, I was actually six credits away from having a bachelor's in psychology. Shine away from those math degrees, huh? (laughs) Yeah. You know, once I got done with community college, I found out that, Anthropology was an option, and it actually encompasses all of those disciplines. And underneath that was, you know, the four fields. So biological anthropology, linguistics, cultural, and archaeology. And then it was like, oh, that's how you do it. You have to go through anthropology to get into archaeology. Um, So I was always kind of interested in history and things like that, um, but I just didn't know how to get there. And then I got to the University of Wyoming, and then it all clicked. I feel like um, I feel like that's the, like the most ran- romantic part of archaeology, at least like it's romanticized in popular films and, and whatnot, is that that field aspect. And you can you talk about Jurassic Park, you can talk about Indiana Jones. There's like this 
fascination, I mean, and, and love of the field by people who actually do it. But I feel like this, this is not even remotely controversial. I feel like field work is not well represented in popular media. media. No. Like the reality of it all. I mean, the only like, like, I guess, exposure to field work I had growing up as a kid, like knowing about it was like in Jurassic Park, that scene where they're with that stupid fucking uh, radar machine that doesn't exist, but they're out in the field, you know, that's the first time Uh I saw that. And I was like, oh, that's what a field science is, I guess, when I got to school. But I don't know. So growing up with your dad doing stuff in the field, like, what was that like? Um, It was uh, very helpful, actually, for my future. Because I, I became very familiar with lithic materials at a very young age and seeing artifacts on the ground and things like that. So, you know, I guess when I would see it in movies, it was definitely not represented how I saw it, like living it, you know. So it is kind of weird to see how the field of archaeology is represented in film and just in popular culture. I think, you know, that amount of paperwork and the excavations, the, you know, management of the data is definitely not entertaining for the masses. <laughs> you know, you'd rather yeah. see somebody out there with a whip and, you know, <laughs> punching people. I think that's, yeah, I think that's my biggest beef is that no one's doing paperwork in anything. It's like, <laughs> yeah. come on, that's like 90%, not 90%, but like 60% of actual field work is like organizing and, and trying to figure out what the heck you did for the last couple weeks and stuff and it's not easy someone's handwriting that you're like what the fuck did that person write yeah well i don't know like i guess on the topic of indiana jones like do you think that's a positive or a negative you know representation or is it both i mean or is there anything that's actually correct about it even so i i definitely want to point out that as we talk about indiana jones one of our colleagues and who will be interviewed for episode eight, nine. What episode is this? This is eight. Ocho. Oh, yes. For episode, nine. <laughs> episode nine, Dig It with Raven. She just dropped a new video on YouTube, Archaeologists React to Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so I highly recommend our viewers to definitely check that out. She does good work and does, I mean, we all know where this is going. Like, yeah. Um, uh, had let's watch the do we want to be militant the, about this or do we want to be like calm and serene? So, I'll, I'll, I'll open with a, a qualifier. I, I liked Indiana Jones as you a kid, I watched the shit out of it. Your <laughs> here we go. I see, I'm gonna get ridiculed for this, and I, I'm gonna people tell me this all the time, and maybe that's why I'm a failure, but like, I. <laughs> really enjoy Indiana Jones and like I got into archaeology and I was like you know what I really like archaeology I like history I like old things not a huge fan of Nazis so like you know checks out <laughs> and then I went to school got into it and then I realized when I was doing history I switched to anthropology because that was cooler and then I was like oh you can do archaeology with anthropology oh and that's how I do archaeology took a class and I was like okay so Indiana Jones is just not an archaeologist at all but I'm still doing archaeology so this is awesome yeah, and no, like, but agreed. I think that's a positive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone loves it. It's Hollywood. And then you actually get into the field and it's like, oh, this is wrong. He's not an archaeologist. He's a looter. And mm-hmm. he just destroys everything where he goes. Oh, yeah. He's the definition and, uh, of a looter. And the fourth movie is definitely the worst. Um, not a fan. 
Are we talking know, Crystal did, Skull? Oh, we're talking Crystal Skull. I loved it. <laughs> nope. I like, opening I like, statement, Carlton. Yeah. Let's hear it. Last, last Crusade. I love the Last Crusade. Give me Sean Connery any day. You have chosen poorly. Well, did you guys see that uh, article I sent you earlier today? The Chicago Tribune uh, from 2014. They actually have excerpts from George Lucas's transcript uh, when he was talking to Spielberg about Indiana Jones. And so essentially what he says is Indiana Jones is intentionally uh, going to be like an outlaw archaeologist. Um, he's, you know, educated uh, with a PhD. He's a doctor, um, but he's kind of fed up with that life. And so he just becomes a grave robber for hire. <laughs> and that's George oh. Lucas's words. So it's almost kind of weird that, you know, archaeologists gravitate towards this character. But even George Lucas was like, yeah, this isn't you know, he's not actually an archaeologist. Okay. He's just a grave robber. He His character is loosely based on a real-life archaeologist, though, isn't he? Uh, there's a couple, I think. I don't know much about them. Maybe you guys know these names. Uh, Leonard Woolley, um, Hiram Bingham the third, and Roy Chapman Andrews. And they're all pseudo-archaeologists, mainly explorers, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, they're um, before the field develops into a real prof like academic profession. It's like early early 20th, late 19th century archaeology where it's basically just people with money running right. around the globe blow, like just looting. Look at these fascinating artifacts of the Amazon and then like bring them back home and they're like, yeah. Wasn't wasn't Hiram Bingham the person who took uh the the Incan stuff from Machu Picchu? Uh, yeah, he published Swear. The Lost City, I think is the book, and saying that it was the last city, I believe. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's, um, that's our last. history, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But what it's really interesting the last how, city. like, the, the last lost city? Is that what he's saying? Uh, yeah. Something, something like that. Are you flipping through a book to find this out right now? No, I took some notes earlier. You know, oh, nerd. You know, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I had my. I'm sorry. Um, one of my favorite archaeologists that's portrayed in films. Have you guys ever seen the Lost City of Z? Mm -mm. You yeah. guys, you guys have missed out. It came out on Amazon. The lead actor is the same actor from Sons of, Sons of Anarchy, and it. Uh, you guys are not anywhere near as psyched for this as you need to be. Um, well, it's about like um, him finding like a Mayan city, right? It's like early exploration into the Yucatan, right? No, close, close, close. So it's actually like based on a real life dude. His name is Percy Harrison Fawcett, um, British military officer. And he uh, he was enlisted by, I think, the British Geographical Society to basically go out to um, the jungles of Brazil. And basically he was, he was meant to like map the borders between the disputed territories between some countries in South America. But while he was there and he went up this river that no one was able to get up to, um, he finds uh, pottery out in the jungles and does not know what is going on. Comes back to the British, uh, the Geographical Society upon his return, treated as a hero, and like was like, I found evidence of pottery of this long lost civilization. This civilization could have been more advanced than London at the time. And he was 
berated because this is like the early 19th century, early 20th century, late, uh, late, late 18th and uh, or late 19th. Sorry. And the, the fact and this is during a time when ethnocentrism was rampant. It's at the, you know, the dawn of all these these um, colonizing empires and they were not a fan of it. But like he went back to like prove them wrong. And spent his entire life going back like he had to take a break during World War One because he was a major in the British Army. And like his buddies that went on expedition with him uh, went that went on expedition with him to Brazil became his um, troops in World War One. He lost a couple. He afterwards he goes back and I believe he goes back with his son and they just disappear. Like never seen again. And like I, I like the movie is great. It's called The Lost City of Z. It was on Amazon. I don't think it's there anymore. But it, like it's it's a much better accurate retelling of a real life representation of like archaeology and some of these expeditions cuz like I mean I'm not sure how Percy Fawcett was in real life, but in the movie he's very much portrayed as as an explorer and a scientist who's like, "No, there's evidence here for something. We need to look at this." And it's not till, you know, almost 100 years later when people are doing some of these surveys of Brazil and they're finding evidence for roads and this civilization that Percy first argued for existed and was totally um, lambasted for it. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd be really interested to see if he actually um, took anything back. I don't know if it mentions it in the movie because I think that's he definitely you know, brought you can back be excited. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, hey, that's that's that might be the history of that. But go ahead, Dave. Chris, do you want to pop in and, and say what that book was? Because I'm not sure exactly what that is. Uh, yeah. So uh, this guy, Jordan, uh, yeah, Justin Jacobs, sorry, Indiana Jones in history. So this guy wrote this book about basically the real stories behind Indiana Jones. He had a lot of that stuff that Damien was talking about from Spielberg and uh, George Lucas about how they were talking about who they were basing Indiana Jones on and things like that. But then he also talked about the idea of archaeology in the 30s and how it was saw and how, how that kind of parallels some of what Indiana Jones is <laughs> is doing in the movies. And, uh, it's an oh, interesting okay. read. It really is. It's an academic book. It's not like a, not like a quack book, but, uh, and he talks about a little bit about the fifth movie that's supposed to be out in, uh, 2020 apparently, but I haven't heard much more about that. I don't know if that's still real. That's, uh, interesting that you bring that up. Cause that was kind of one of my points that I wanted to ask you guys was, do you think that, you know, Indiana Jones is kind of representing salvage anthropology. And I think that may translate to, you know, contemporary archaeologists too, because um, his whole goal is kind of like, you know, saying that he has the ownership of this cultural material that he's like searching for, you know, and then you never see what he really does with it. And then it's like, well, he's the authority and he's the expert. So, you know, of course, Indiana Jones should have it. And I kind of feel like, it's kind of on the nose a little bit about, you know, professional archaeologists in some cases. Grab the idol and run. Yeah. <laughs> I think they say loot and scoot. <laughs> loot and scoot. So for our listeners, that um, that book that uh, our producer, Chris, who hangs out on our episodes behind the scenes that you guys don't know about. Also, the Webster Dictionary for when you guys totally get fucked up with our definitions. Um, he, uh, it's the, the, they talk about it on the archaeology show episode 38 here on the archaeology <laughs> podcast network. So, uh, so for our listeners go check that out who, uh, they'll go into it in detail so we don't have to, but do I think he represents salvage archaeology? I don't, I don't know. I think, 
the best representation that the Indiana Jones movies talk about is like the real life Nazi archaeological missions. Yeah, um, like they went out there looking like for that. That's stuff. that's <laughs> real. Like the SS brought in academics from Germany who were archaeologists, like made professors SS. Um, I hope Trump makes me part of the Space Force. But um, yeah, actually like brought people into the SS and like sent them out to go carry these missions to find evidence for an Aryan race to support their nationalist ideologies and their, uh, you know, Aryan supremacy, which was totally bullshit. And they flooded uh, the academic literature in the 1930s and 40s with utter bullshit. garbage. Yeah, <laughs> just utter, utter, yeah. utter bullshit. So, um, so I think that's an accurate representation um, in Indiana Jones. Like that's a real life thing. They're not just pulling a movie bad guy, but there was really an archaeological bad guy. And there are today, they're called ISIS. Um, Okay. That they exist. There's more than just them, too, but yeah. ISIS plus. I, 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 yeah, <laughs> ISIS plus. <laughs> uh, I, I, I agree. Um, I think I can see it representing, Indiana Jones representing kind of the Victorian era of archaeology and also this kind of salvage portion. And, you know, you see that salvage portion pretty upfront um, and stuff. I've been, I listened to the book, uh, audiobook, uh, Od- Monuments Men. Where they go and try to, mm. you know, there's that whole like yeah. army division going to find stuff that the, the SS has taken and is actively confiscating. Um, so I think you can see they both, made a movie it, about like, that. steps into both. Yeah, yeah. And it was like Matt a pretty good movie. Matt Damon. <laughs> John Goodman, yeah. There yeah, were some yeah, really yeah, good actors it, in that. Like surprisingly. Yeah, a classy like, lineup. Yeah. Yeah. Was, Who was uh, Was it Bill Murray? Was he in it? Uh, Clooney, Goodman, uh, who else is in it? Yeah, Bill Murray's uh, in it. Damon, Bill Murray, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great movie. I've never um, read the book because uh, I don't have time to read things that I want to read. But, you uh, mentioned uh, Space Force there, Carlton. Um, <laughs> Car- Damien, didn't you mention something about Picard being an archaeologist? Can you talk more about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, um, it's kind of that funny is, because we're talking about this as uh, you know these older explorers, and it was kind of like a luxury to do this. And in Star Trek, The Next Generation, Jean-Luc Picard is an archaeologist. It's a hobby of his. And so he has a, a deep knowledge of a lot of different cultures and their histories. And he's also kind of a collector of artifacts. And that's why he's the best captain, because he's an archaeologist. I had is he no clue that he was an archaeologist. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of want to watch that show now just because he's an archaeologist. Well, I think you should, and not to like, sound too nerdy, but it is very anthropological in its nature, I think. Like the prime directive is like what Jane right. Goodall tried to do, but fucked up. Yeah. But yeah. Like, Observe uh, and report, you know, minimal yeah. disturbance on cultures, let them do what they are doing, you know, try to understand them, cultural relativism, you know, try to understand it from their perce- uh, perspective. Um, wait, wait, wait. What did, yeah. what did Jane Goodall do? Why are you hating on the chimp lady? Uh, I, I love I love Jane Goodall. Like she's changed the field. She's Shot a wonderful fired. scientist. Like a huge inspiration to me. But um, uh, there's a lot of flack that she gets in the primatology field for like just literally hanging out with the chimpanzee she was studying and like 
Um, it might have biased her like opinions of what they were doing sometimes and like attaching names to them and doing specific things. But um, like she named some of them Frodo and stuff, gotcha. which she did milestones for the the field. It's just is that the right way to do it? We don't know. But that was, you know, the 60s. So. Well, uh, let's let's continue this uh, during the next segment because the uh, Klingons are on their way. They're upset with the way that uh, <laughs> Jane Goodall is interacting with the chimpanzees. So once we get this whole thing sorted out, uh, we'll be right back with uh, segment three. Welcome back to episode eight. Uh, we are in the section three of a Life in Ruins podcast, and that was a beautiful mess, but we're still going through. And I was going to ask you, Damon, do you think um, John Luke Picard is the uh, is kind of how we view modern looters? I mean, he's he's super knowledgeable about the areas he goes to, and he might do a little bit of collecting on the side, which is uh, something I think that looters do as well. Like they're really comfortable with the material culture of their areas and they might put it in their pocket every once in a while. Mm. Well, I would never disrespect Jean-Luc Picard. So I would say he may represent a looter, but it's hard to say because whenever they kind of show him, uh, engaging in archaeology or something like that. It's not clear whether it's on the holodeck, which they could just replicate um, excavations or something like that, or the artifacts that he has displayed are actually from the replicator. They could just, you know, recreate them. So I don't know if I would say he's looting per se, but I do think he probably has a a relatable, you know, analogous uh, depth of knowledge that looters probably have, like contemporary looters. If only we all had the replicator, man. I mean, that would make archaeology yeah. so much easier. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. It's called 3D printing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that instant? How long does that take? Uh, that's not. You still need matter. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. You gotta have filaments. <laughs> Technically, you don't need matter. <laughs> <laughs> so. To be determined if Picard is a looter, but uh, in order, yeah, yes. I'm not going to besmirch the good uh, captain's name. So, Connor, watch your goddamn mouth. Yeah, exactly. All right, I have, I've got a, uh, I've got something. Oh, should get it checked out. Yeah, let's go talk to Doc, man. Let's uh, talk 10,000 BC. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so that collective groan is what I'm experiencing right now, too. Damien, you sought, uh, you were to refresh yourself last night and graced your eyes with that movie for an hour and a half, didn't you? Oh, yeah, you know, I was like, hey, I haven't seen that in a while, and I don't remember much, so I had to revisit it. And let me tell you, um, it was hard to sit through. <laughs> <laughs> but I did look something up that I thought was interesting. That movie costed about a million dollars to make and it grossed 270 million so Wait, technically it, cost it was just a it, cost, it only cost a million 100 million oh oh, oh okay exactly. Wait, how much did they break and then it it grossed 270 million so i think we can say that this was a success and i'm wondering does this prove that there's actually like a market for movies about prehistory you know, or is it just like random luck that it was a success? If I remember correctly, that had a huge marketing campaign and I was like, all right, I'm amped about mm -hmm. this. And then I went and saw it in the theater and was like, I got diarrhea, dude. It was the worst. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I would say um, it, like it shows that there's like a market for fantastical prehistory mm -hmm. more but, than um, it does like show that it's actual people want to learn about the past you know they're yeah. more interested in some dude running riding a mammoth 
onto the pyramids because that's accurate. Mm-hmm. And then I think Jack Black and Michael Sarah had that one movie that came out right after it. Year it was one. Like a parody of it. Yeah, yeah. Year one. That movie was great. Mm-hmm. But um, Connor, to answer your question, did any of you guys see Alpha? No. I did. I haven't. Yeah. It, that one was pretty good. Also had a huge marketing campaign and kind of like seemed to have fallen flat, but like they did a great job that a French archaeologist like teach them how to flint nap and everything in the movie and they but, actually were closed. But, but um, Dennis I mean, I Stanford have... was used as a consultant for the archaeology and the spear points. And did you recognize what kind of spear points were on uh on yes, those bad boys? the original name for the movie was going to be called The Salutrian, and <laughs> they changed it. makes me so fucking yeah. angry. Do you know Dennis Stanford recently called, died? I had a chance to kill the dead. From saying, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, he just I, passed I, away recently. I, he was a good archaeologist with some interesting views. We will miss but I feel him. like if they, if they uh, had promoted oh, yeah. that as like a Salutrian thing, it still would have like sold because that's like fantastical mm-hmm. and like, you know, like, Oh, Europeans were here before uh, native Americans or yeah. something like that. And it can build into like a, an ideology of like a not good ideology. Oh, it'd have been on, on uh, the next Hitler youth watch list. If it was <laughs> called the Salutrian thing, like it had been like the neighborhood block party for the KKK viewing. Like, to the director and the producers, like uh, credit, they I did see online they changed the name because of the controversy, and they didn't want to like side with like who's right, who's wrong on that, and they were like, let's just make it a movie about ancient France, and I thought that was like kind of chill. Um, no, that was they tried great. to to be the Revenant, and they filmed it before the Revenant, I think, and then like the Revenant was, was just way better <laughs> of a movie, and then they were like, all right, well, we have to release this now. Well, I'm sure it was better than Alpha, but you know. Yes. Yes, it was. I love The Revenant. Alpha was pretty good. No, Alpha. Yeah, I enjoyed I mean, Alpha. Like I, Oscar I was like, worthy. yeah, that's dope. I there, think I was. If you want my opinions on the dog domestication, check out the post on my account. But like, I'm not gonna go into it now. But it it does all right. I think the uh, yeah, I was I was pleased with it. I left happy. The Revenant probably suffers from the same thing. Uh, 10,000 BC did where it was uh, geographically very confusing. Um, it was hard to tell what was going on, <laughs> like where they were supposed to be. Yeah, and I felt that way in the Revenant too, you know, like it was supposed to be South Dakota. They filmed it yeah, in Alberta. There's like looming yeah. mountains and um, a very like uh, almost like Pacific Northwest kind of like forest in there. And I don't know. It's very confusing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like environmental filming aside, because like, I don't think there's really any pristine areas left in, you know, those those states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I imagine uh, it's hard. The, like, like like Wind River was filmed in Park City, Utah. Right. right oh, yeah. was it really? Yeah, it wasn't filmed in Wyoming. It was filmed in Park City. And they don't even have Shoshone's uh, and Arapahoes. They have, um, I want to say Ute actors. Because I'm pretty a tri- I'm pretty sure Tribe bankrolled that movie. And so they, they uh, hired... Uh, actors and extras from that tribe that bankrolled it. But if you don't know anything about Wyoming or Native American culture, then uh, you wouldn't know or care. Speaking of Native Americans, what do we think about Last of the Mohicans? <laughs> you know, actually, back to the Revenant. I felt attacked. I was like, no, I don't... like uh, the one thing I didn't like was the son's name was Hawk. 
I thought like they could have tried a little better. They took my boy. You know? Yeah, being, I mean, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Being Pawnee and knowing no. the Pawnee naming system, that is that is an adequate name. They were consulted because <laughs> you have uh, in, in in Pawnee culture, you get you can have many different names over the course of your life, but you have like a child's name that's given to you, and then you get another name that's more associated with whatever you have done. So most of the time, like kids' names are like really simple because they're not trying to talk about some sort of event that the child has done. Um, so like Hawk is, is rather adequate. Well, that's fair, but he um, didn't even a have a son though. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. And in yeah, real yeah. life he did. Yeah. In real so life he didn't It just seems kind son, of like, but like in real life they just stole yeah, They're just gun. slapping that in and there. He's you like know? chasing this guy. I don't know. <laughs> Because I mean, a filial relationship is a little more understandable and grips an audience yeah. better. But yeah, that's just me being a Hollywood elitist. <laughs> and and the dude, I mean, the the real story is I think is far more fascinating than the movie telling. The movie telling I thought was like pretty good, but like the real story of that man is crazy. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he ended up getting killed by the uh, the Rickera later in his life on another expedition. They killed him in St. Louis. They did not kill him in St. Louis. Someone died in St. Louis that I remember reading about, and I was like, what? Nope, he died in South North Dakota. <laughs> a lot of people have died in St. Louis. But And then he Rough. was also, like, he actually never even killed the dude. <laughs> like, in the in the movie, he kills the, you know, the antagonist, but in real life, he doesn't. In real life, the antagonist actually... Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger Jim- died in St. Louis. That's right. He was in the movie, though. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. And uh, he, he actually gets he actually escapes and is able to join the army. And then uh, the guy's like, listen, if you ever leave the army, I'll fucking kill you. But uh, then he had, ends up dying anyways, fighting the Ricker again. Um, I watched the uh, the extras of that movie just because I really enjoyed it. Um, and apparently they were trying to film that final scene where like they're fi- he's fighting Tom Hardy in the snow. Uh, and they were going to do that in Alberta. But by, when they went to go film it, it was like sunny and hot there at like the wrong time of the year. And they were like, well, shit. So they flew to Patagonia to film that scene because it was still cold there. <laughs> and like like Wyoming wasn't like snowy oh at that God. point, too, because it's just like the climate was just not right. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> but the jumping continents. Yeah. I mean, that's how it is with um, Hollywood. I mean, like, first yeah. off. Lord of the Rings wasn't even filmed in the Middle Earth. It was filmed in yeah, New Zealand. Exactly, exactly. You take that back. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Get out of here. Can I ask if you um you thought that there was good representation of Native Americans when he was in the Revenant when he was going and you know hanging out with them? Do you think that was accurate? I mean, um, to to my understanding, yeah, they they did the Arikara as well. And they did the Pawnees when the Pawnees did show up. But then there's like that scene of like an Earth Lodge village of Pawnees being burned down, which like never happened. So there was like some historical inaccuracies, of course, when it comes to that. But like in terms of the dress, the language, it was all it was all great. Like they brought in um, indigenous supervisors and cultural liaisons to help out with that and like language coaches. I think the Pawnee language cultures actually, uh, they came out of um, Indiana Bloomington and uh, representatives Mm -hmm. from Pawnee, Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, Bloomington has a very big history with working with native languages, which is funny, which is interesting because like I'll talk to people about Revenant and they're like, I don't understand how, because the point when a hawk dies and that he's just kind of left there and they Rick refined him and they're like, oh, he's a Pawnee boy. Uh, You know, some of my friends like, how would they know? It's like, well, there's these intrinsic differences in dress that, that kind of portray that. 
and uh pretty sure he was so wearing I mean, like, like you know colonial clothes though in the movie or like i'd have to double i'd uh, have to double check but like you can you can tell differences marks tattoos hairstyles yeah um but there's definitely realistically ways you can differentiate people like they're not homogenous native americans where everyone wears the same clothes and does the same thing yeah you know you can fit europe a couple times inside america the continental United States and even North America in general, like the variances in cultures and beliefs is just astounding. Yeah. And I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, I really dug like speaking as a non-native though, but like the, the apocalyptic tone of the movie, like it just was like dark and sad and like, there's no light in the movie. And like, there's this whole like genocide with the American native Americans going on at the same time. And it's like a cool, I mean, genocide's not cool, but the way they like, they work that into the movie. It's like also like a side plot of the movie is just like, Oh yeah. Native Americans are just like losing all of their culture to like this expansionist you know, American way of life. Um, so, uh, you know, official it. stance of the life and ruins podcast is we do not condone or support genocide. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm um, going to always stand by that and not support that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, another good movie shit. I don't even, it's not even archeologically related, but it's like, uh, hostile, <laughs> What? Hostiles. 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 Oh, Hostiles. Hostiles. Hostile is like a song. Yeah, Eli movie. Roth. I was like, I don't know. No, man. No, Host- yeah, I was like, <laughs> Hostiles was good. Christian Bale. Uh, West Studi, right? Yeah, West Studi was in it. He's actually, I think, one of the first Native American actors getting an Emmy. Hmm. I don't think I've seen that. So really? It's, it's yeah. I'm good. good. He's Cherokee. Um, you know, support him. He also played a Pawnee in Dances with Wolves, the movie that shall not be uh, talked about. And, uh, yeah, I, I, the reason why I love that movie is because like at the beginning of it, they make Native Americans look like the villains, but by the end of it, they go through this whole colonial transformation and realizing, you know, the the, depri- the deprivations of Manifest Destiny. And at the end, the, you know, they all end up getting killed by pissed off white ranchers who didn't care about the United States government or anything else. And it's you know, yeah. it was an interesting transformation. Like, they come together with like coming to grips with their like grief and suffering. Like it was it was an interesting movie. Like and it wasn't blatant about it. Like it wasn't yeah. blatant. That's what I liked. It was subtle. Like there was a subtle change in the tone. But uh, you know what? Wasn't speaking of like new new things going on right now. Can I can I change the subject? Yeah, yeah. Is that appropriate? No. Yeah. So there's a. It, the movie's not out right though. William um, is the new movie about kind of came out in April and... 2019, I think. Oh crap! I haven't I seen it. Yeah, it was it was a about? limited viewing. I don't think I was going to go see it. it and... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a limited viewing. I wanted to see it because it came to Denver, but we were actually at SAAs when it came out or something like that, so I missed it. I want to see it, and for our listeners that were wondering what we're talking about, it's called William, which makes it super hard to search. Yes. Um, and it's about a Neanderthal human hybrid boy. So, like, the parents are geneticists or paleoanthropologists, something along those lines, and they basically splice – an embryo of the, of the woman with, I think it's semen of a Neanderthal or they create it something weird. Anyways, nice. you get a hybrid baby yeah. and uh, it's, it's this like coming to terms movie about this boy. Who's like half Neanderthal, half homo sapien, like growing so, up in the world, real world, modern era. Is the official stance of a life in his podcast then that Neanderthals and humans can be hybridized or, well, yeah, I mean, I thought you thought something differently. Oh, I do, David. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, <laughs> Damien, yeah. uh, we talked about this last time. Yeah, let's yeah. let our guests talk about it. 
Okay, so I think I know where this is going. <laughs> um, so I'm going to preface this first by saying I do believe in extinction, but usually when it's a catastrophic event and the population does not pass on any genetic material and it's not observable in the living populations. And just to clear this up, uh, we're talking about what a species technically is, right? And so if we think of the old traditional definition of a species, it's usually organisms that can produce um, fertile offspring with one another, right? So you have yeah. uh, dogs, shout out to David, Rachel Shimmick. Uh, you have uh, horses, shout out to Cassidy Thornhill. And if horses made it with like a donkey, shout out to Sean Carroll. Um, those offspring would be what? infertile, right? <laughs> And so, <laughs> that man is not infertile. I can tell you that. So, um, you know, the, the, the offspring of the mules are going to be infertile, right? So they're not passing God, on successful yeah. genetic material. Okay. And so it gets really complex when you're talking about modern humans and our hominin ancestors, particularly in Neanderthals and you know, as more data is being recovered, uh, the Denisovans, because they're now entering this discussion. And so, like, some people argue that species should actually just be defined as groups of organisms sharing a mix of anatomical, behavioral, and genetic traits at, that distinguishes them from other groups. Okay. Um, and so, for based on that definition, rather than the old traditional definition, it's hard for me to accept the word being thrown around um, of extinction for things like Neanderthal and uh, Denisovans, actually. And so I know this is controversial, but um, if, yeah, no, that, that's that's a fair assessment. Yeah, if I think if I the agree with Damien, one hundred percent, genetic materials passed on, then I think they're um, observable and still living within us, technically. So, what's your species mm-hmm. name, though? You're on the spot. <laughs> My species name? What do you mean? Or like, what's the, what's what do you call Neanderthals? What's their species? Well, I mean, they're uh, Homo Neanderthalus, right? Oh. That's where I disagree. And so they all. Well, wow. I think it's uh, Heidelbergensis. I'm I'm not a biological anthropologist, so I'm going to put this out there. But you know, we have I think Heidelbergensis leaving Africa, and then it branches to Neanderthals and Denisovans, and then some of them stayed and became Homo sapiens, which. Some people say archaic Homo sapiens. So even them, like they would be different than us, you know, contemporary Homo sapiens. And then them integrating with each other, those three, uh, producing successful offspring and carrying that genetic material. I'm not sure I would say they're technically extinct. Sure. Sweet. So real quick, because we have to tie this up. Connor, what do you, what, what's the species name? Just, just shout it out. No explanation. Homo Neanderthal census. That one. Uh, uh, David. No. Homo sapiens Neanderthal census to me. That's the one. <laughs> and then Damien, you said Homo Neanderthalensis. Yeah. I, I'm going with Homo sapiens. I don't. I don't. Nope. Homo sapiens. If we can interbreed. I take my Neanderthals the way I was learning them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See, I thought you were asking what people call it. <laughs> no, got no. you. Well, guys, we gotta we gotta wrap it up. Uh, Damien, thank you so much. Um, oh, is yeah, there anything like to, me, guys? Yeah, was there anything you'd like to plug real quick? Um, yeah, my Instagram is latifrons underscore eighty eight. 
and also search uh, North Arrow Archaeology. That's uh, my consulting company with uh, Cassidy Thornhill, and we do a uh, you know, funnel analyses and consultant work. So look us up. Sweet. Hell yeah. Well, everyone, that was uh, episode eight of a Life Ruins podcast. That was our first host for our new Our Ruin Lives episode, Damian Kirkwood, our buddy from Uni- uh, University of Wyoming. And we are out. Unlike the Neanderthals. Oh, my God. Nope. Homo sapiens influences. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. A prehistoric kid named Pig asks his dad what weapon he should use to hunt with. What does, he, what does his dad say? Um, atlatl. Oinkalatl. Adel, that'll do, pig. I hate you. Jesus! <laughs> that was actually pretty good. <laughs> this show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.